exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. Tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. We have a great show lined up for you tonight. We'll be talking about the film Tax Incentive that may end with a new governor next year. Also on the show, we will have Donnie Brown, the drummer of East Lansing's own The Verve Pipe. We'll also have a folk music performance. But first, here is a conversation I had with Christina Cheddar Burke, the news editor of CNBC.com last week, about Christmas shopping. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Christina Cheddar-Burke. She is the news editor at CNBC.com, and she's on the phone to talk about Christmas shopping and bargain hunting. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. So, throughout this past month or two, you've been writing blogs on CNBC.com about holiday shopping this year. So, what are some interesting things that you've observed so far? Well, one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, we, we've all heard about Cyber Monday and Black Friday, and it seems that retailers now are kind of banding together to create more of these shopping events. And so we have two more coming up by, the, you know, by the end of the holiday season. So the first one is, is Free Shipping Day. And so this is a group of retailers that got together, and they're, you know, offering all these free shipping deals on December 17th, and a lot of them are even throwing in a little extra. So in, in addition to getting that expedited shipping that will get gifts from the retailer to the customer in time for Christmas, they're also sometimes throwing in some extra deals. So that's going to be coming another good event for um, for people to, you know, to participate in. And then also next week, so for people who are kind of down to the last minute and haven't finished their holiday shopping yet, because this year the timing of Christmas is a little, you know, difficult for some people because this is the last weekend that we're coming into. And so uh, a lot of people like to wait until the last minute, and that's, you know, going to be during a weekday. So one day that might help some of those people who are in that situation is click it to get it day. And this is the first time ever that retailers are, are doing this kind of a event. And this is to promote um, e-gift cards. And so I don't know if you've ever heard of these. These are gift cards that you buy online and they get sent to the recipient's email, you know, email address. And they can actually, you know, it might seem a little impersonal, but you can actually customize some of these. So you can upload photos or videos and kind of give it a little bit more of a personal touch, add your own message. And so that kind of gives it a little bit of an extra twist. And this Click It to Get It Day, the reason why that's important is because um, what they're doing is in addition to getting the gift cards, a lot of retailers are offering either um, a gift card for you or um, a... um, charitable donations, some other, like, incentives to just kind of sweeten the deal a little bit further. So you're saying with with this uh, Click It to Get It day, I think that's what you call it, um, that people can, if, if they sign up for it, they can also get gift cards for themselves. And that reminds me, have you been noticing this year, let's say on Black Friday or Cyber Monday, that people are now, um, not only are they getting gifts for other people, but they're also buying for themselves on these days? Yes, that's actually been one of the things that's been driving um, holiday sales to be a little bit better than people were expecting. Uh, the National Retail Federation actually just increased 
their sales forecast for the holiday season. They had been expecting an increase of 2.3% in holiday sales. Now they've upped that to 3.3%. And and most of that's been because, you know, retailers were doing a lot of promotion in November and people were going out and buying those deals and they were like, you know, not only buying their gifts but also, you know, you know, buying a sweater for, for mom and then buying one for themselves. So that's been, you know, definitely helping holiday sales. And what are some gimmicks um, consumers should look out for when shopping, and how can consumers avoid spending more than they have planned during this um, these last few shopping days? Well, we, we tell people to go out with a budget, go out with a list, know what you're going to get, and do your homework ahead of time. Uh, there's lots of great websites um, that can help you along with that. And, you know, they, they compare prices and there's different applications that you can download to your smartphone. And for more information on this, you can go to holidaycentral.cnbc.com for that information. But the, um, we, you know, when you're looking to, like we have, um, we have an article about six tips for, for buying consumer electronics. And, you know, one of the things we tell people is that when you get the electronic, if you receive a gadget or something for the holidays, then you can um, power it on. A lot of times what happens with consumer electronics is that it, the, if it's going to break or have some kind of defect, you're going to see that in the first 48 hours of use. And so you should actually put your equipment through a stress test by leaving it on for, for that length of time. And then... After it's on, turn it down, let it cool off for as long as possible, perhaps a full day. And then when you restart it, if you don't experience any problems at that, then you're probably you're going to be fine with that piece of equipment. And if you do, then you're still well under the warranty for the product. Very interesting. So what are some good gift ideas for people that haven't um, finished their shopping yet? Yeah, we have a you know we have a lot of suggestions you know for gifts for the procrastinator, and some of them are, are really good because they um, don't even require you to you know leave home um, to, to get them. You know, we we mentioned the e gift cards. That's one idea, but um, you know mail order steaks are, are a good idea. MP3 players, you can kind of personalize that to, um, you know, put songs that the recipient might like. And what's been great this holiday season is that some of the costs for MP3 players, you know, the generic kind, have gone down as low as, I've seen sale prices as low as $15. So wow. that could really be an inexpensive but personal gift. Um, we also had a really novel suggestion. You know, a lot of people have been trying to, to climb out of credit card debt. And so we were saying that, you know, rather than get a gift that somebody might not really need or use, help them make a payment on their uh, debt. So that's, um, you know, and it actually is a gift that kind of pays um, dividends down the road because they'll be saving all that interest on that. Well, I know this year we saw um, Cyber Monday was a big hit this year. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. because there was so much spending online, are we seeing less um, spending in the retail stores because online sales are up? No, actually it seems like, you know, the tide is kind of lifting all boats. Um, right now, uh, online sales have been tracking about 12% ahead of last year. And like I said, the overall retail sales in online as well as in the store is expected to be up that 3.3% according to the NRF. The, the estimates kind of vary. But um, 
the one thing that's going to be interesting to watch as far as retailers go is um, how profitable they are. The sales are one thing, but a lot of retailers have really been offering a lot of discounts and doing promotions to get people in the door. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how much their money they're actually making on those sales. But we think that retailers really knew that they were going to have to offer consumers incentives. So we think that they've planned for those discounts. So the earnings should be, you know, pretty good for most retailers. Well, on the phone is Christina Cheddar-Burke. She is the news editor for CNBC.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's been great to talk to you. All right. Thanks so much. You're listening to Impact Exposure. All right. And roll sound. Rolling sound. It's speed. Roll cameras. Speed. Cameras rolling. Marker. Scene 16, shot D, take one. Action. Tucked back in the abandoned parking lot of the old Pfizer Research Facility in Ann Arbor is a team of students wrapping up their final week of filming a 30-minute movie called Appleville. Aaron Whitmore wrote the screenplay. Appleville is about, it's, a, it's basically speed on a bus with senior citizens. Two brothers attempt to rob and hijack a bus full of retirees out for a, a mall opening. Whitmore recently graduated from the screenwriting program at the University of Michigan. She's part of the Michigan Creative Film Alliance, a cooperative venture between Michigan State University, Wayne State University, and the University of Michigan. The eight-week program aims to teach students the art and science of filmmaking. It's, it's amazing to see something that comes from your imagination start to materialize in front of you. The Creative Film Alliance was developed in response to Michigan's film tax incentive passed in 2008. Critics say the tax incentives are too generous and the proposed production studios have taken too long to materialize. Screenwriter Jim Bernstein is with the Michigan Film Office Advisory Council and says anticipated production studios like Unity Studios and Allen Park didn't happen, not because of a lack of interest, but because of a lack of funding. It's taken us forever to start to build these studios. Now, why is that? It's because Wall Street had a meltdown and the financing for these projects wasn't there. And that happened because the laws passed in 2008. In 2008 is when the crash came. So a lot of these projects that thought they were going to have financing didn't. But Bernstein says he's confident the studios will happen. He says in 2007, only three films were shot in Michigan. The year the film tax incentives passed, 32 films were shot. Last year, that number rose to around 50. He anticipates those numbers will continue to rise this year. Bernstein says despite the hardship Michigan's economy faced, many people have hope for the industry's future. When the big three was going under and everybody in Washington was kicking Detroit while it was down, Clint Eastwood comes here and makes Grand Torino. And at the end of that movie, it was around Christmas time, 2008, people stayed and watched the credits. And when it said made in Michigan at the end, people burst into applause. It, it brought tears to your eyes. As coordinator of the screenwriting program at the U of M, Bernstein says more of his students are choosing to stay in Michigan. Before the incentive, almost all of his students left for California or New York. Now, he says, about 80% are staying. I was stunned how much they wanted to stay here and build something. I didn't see it coming. And the opportunities they're getting here are 
so much greater now than if they moved to L.A. Alleviating the brain drain was a goal of Governor Jennifer Granholm's when she signed the bill and was a big motivator for Emory King, chairman of the Michigan Film Office Advisory Council, when he generated the idea for the Creative Film Alliance. What gave me the idea was um, a recognition of the brain drain in Michigan and the uh, clear opportunity for so many talented students at the three major institutions to eliminate any barriers, existing barriers, that would prevent these students from moving freely between uh, these schools to round out their curriculum and their education, with the idea being that with so much work coming here, we can begin to lay the foundation for building an indigenous film industry in the state of Michigan using our own talented resources. Richard Jewell is the Workforce Development Manager for the Michigan Film Office. He's a seasoned actor who is donating his time to perform in Appleville. Jewell says by bringing the three schools together for the first time through film, they can begin to build an alliance in Michigan. Three universities that usually don't see each other, except on a football field, with painted faces and and, and complaining about calls. Uh There is no uh, sovereignty of universities in this project. You can't even tell which students belong to which school unless they happen to be wearing their school colors. They're working together. The boundaries are down. They have an objective. And having creative filmmakers working together in Michigan will be a benefit to the film industry. While films receive a 30% tax break for filming in the state, they can receive over 40% in tax breaks if they hire Michigan workers. Kimberly Rice, the managing producer of the Creative Film Alliance, says jobs are coming to Michigan, and she has no doubt about where she'll live after she graduates with her master's from Wayne State. Detroit. I'm here. I would like to stay in Michigan. People have been trying to get me to go away from Detroit since I graduated from high school. And I actually think as far as my career is concerned, I thought it was perfect timing because as soon as I graduated, that's when the whole thing happened, you know, everything. And I was like, wow, maybe I did make a good decision. I'll stay. Bernstein hopes that mentality may be what it takes to help turn the city and the state around. You know, what we want is Motown back in film. And if you can do that, then it's going to be fantastic. Michigan film industry officials say between 2008 and 2009, the industry brought $400 million into Michigan's economy. They expect an additional $300 million this year. Base sound, camera. Parker. <laughs> For Impact Exposure, I'm Emily Fox. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 
3893. And now, back to Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is MSU alum, Justin, or some people call him Bugsy Sailor. Uh, he will um, talk about some of his projects he's been involved in, including his hometown invasion tour in which he traveled to 50 states and stayed with over 100 households during the course of a year. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you. So, so I guess let's let's start off by um, kind of running down some of the projects you've been involved in, and briefly just talk about each one. <laughs> so, we'll probably talk about the hometown invasion tour last, but talk about okay. Uperstees. Well, how, how about I kind of take everybody's from the day I graduated from MSU okay. for All a right. start, okay, and then we'll kind of rehash things. Okay. All right. So I, I studied advertising and sociology while at MSU, and I finished up and graduated in 2006. And between advertising and sociology, it always had the hobbies of photography and web design, and I kind of merged my degrees and all of my hobbies and decided I'm going to go on a 50-state tour across the country, stay with all these people I've never met. And uh, that took up a year of my life after graduation. Uh, but what I realized, and this leads into my Uperstees project, um, throughout my travels across the country, I was continually telling people about where I was from, uh, you know, telling them about Michigan, about the Upper Peninsula where I'm from, uh, about the Great Lakes and Lake Superior. And I think part of that process... I found more Michigan pride, you know, as I was regurgitating all these things uh, constantly. And then eventually I came back, uh, lived in the UP for a year year or so after my trip, and wasn't sure what I was going to do next. Um, but looking back on my trip, I had collected about nearly a T-shirt for every single state, either ones I had bought or ones that had been given to me. And there are some key T-shirts such as the I Heart New York shirt, you know, which everybody knows that shirt, and it, you know, symbolizes New York. And there wasn't really a shirt like that for the UP, and I, I kind of saw opportunity for that, and on a whim just started an Upper, Upper Peninsula blog and t-shirt company and ran with it. And that's been uh, two and a half years, um, going on two and a half years now. And uh, to summarize, I moved uh, down to Lansing a year ago, um, have been you know, dubbing myself the ambassador of the Upper Peninsula, you know, considering myself to be on sabbatical down here, uh, you could say, you know, and teaching trolls <laughs> um, about the Upper Peninsula, uh, which is, you know, providing me a different perspective of the UP and uh, our state. But uh, since then, uh, one of my latest projects starting uh, as a New Year's resolution on the 1st of 2010 uh, is beer with Branson, uh, where my goal is to have a, a beer with Richard Branson by year's end. Very interesting. Very interesting. And I, and I have to say that I, I did stumble upon your website, You Prestige, um, about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, in which um, that was around the time that State Representative um, Michael Lotti, who's from the UP, <laughs> did that legislation yes. that said, hey, sometimes there's these like state documents that don't have the Upper Peninsula in it, and it's saying Michigan, and they're just showing the mitten. So he did that legislation to actually make sure that the Upper Peninsula is always in any drawings that, that's in state publications. Yes, yes. So it's state law that a state publication right. has to have the UP. And in case you're wondering, the UP represents roughly 33% of Michigan's landmass. However, it's only 3% 
of the population. And I got some of those interesting facts from your website, Year for Steez, Excellent. Where in which I didn't realize that, what was it, the area code 906 or something? 906, That's, yeah. There's just one area code for the entire In the entire Upper Peninsula. So, yes. That's crazy. So, so and, and I really do enjoy the website. There's a lot of great merchandise, a blog, photos, interesting facts. Um, very cool. So let's talk about your hometown invasion tour. Um, how did this come about, and how was it funded? Well, I talked about you know some of the hobbies that went into it, uh, photography and web design. I've kept a journal of some sort most of my life. But at the heart of it, the idea was to stay with people I had never met before, which kind of grew out of my sociology degree. And throughout my senior year, I started building this plan for it. The plan started coming together. But at the end of the day, the biggest question was, okay, how am I going to fund this whole trip. And I was fortunate to, uh, to land sponsorship with Jeep. Um, you know, I found it key to um, uh, use all of my contacts at MSU, my professors and, and classmates and things. And most of the trip was funded through donations. Um, you know, gas money was a huge expense, but then uh, another huge expense was uh, event tickets or going to museums or parks across the country. Um, but at, at the end of the year, I think I stayed with 114 households of complete strangers, and uh, it was exactly one year, all 50 states, and the goal was to document as much as, much as possible. So is that kind of like that website? Is it called like Couchsurfer or something? Yeah, where, Couchsurfing. Where, yeah, where you sign up for something and then you can you can go around the country, stay at people's couches, but you have to be able to open up your couch for people to do the same. Yeah, and it's a popular website, and it, it's it came up a number of times on my trip, but I never used it. Um, uh, there are three ways really that I. I came across my hosts on my trip. Uh, one was through, through the website, which uh, uh, is, is still online today, hometowninvasion.com, and it's been fantastic. Uh, there is a contact form where people could fill out, and I had a lot of press that would point people to the contact form, so they could say, oh, hey, stop by while you're in Kentucky, and so that was one-third of it. Uh, the next third was friends of friends, friends of family, you know, any kind of connection through people I knew. And the last third was I'd probably, I'd meet somebody in Texas, they might know somebody in Louisiana, and they might know somebody in, I don't know, New Hampshire, further down the road. So what was that like staying at strangers' homes? <laughs> Strange? <laughs> Maybe at times. No, I was I was blown away uh, by the kindness of of everybody I met and and how generous they were and willing to take time out of their personal lives. Um, but it is it's strange how fast you can get to know these people when you're living with them. You know, it only takes a few days to you know really get to know what they're about. But it was always a situation where I was I knew very little about my house. I I, I knew maybe roughly how old they were, what they did for a career, their family situation, but that was typically typically it. I rarely knew what kind of neighborhood I was driving up into. Um, if I was going to be staying at a mansion or a church, I stayed in one record store. <laughs> and But, you know, so I was there knocking on the door with my duffel bags ready to move in, having no idea who was going to be answering the door on the other side. Um, but one of one of the things I enjoyed the most was the variety of occupations of my hosts. 
um, I guess from a radio DJ, it's appropriate for this, uh, to ranchers, um, these guys who build rockets, a world-renowned acapella producer, uh, you know, of course there are teachers and firefighters and, and you know, things like that as well, um, and even uh, VP of the Travel Channel. Very interesting. So what was, what was the favorite town that you visited? It's, I, I don't know if I can say favorite town. I generally split it up into three favorites, which are all kind of in the Northwest. Um, I have to say the ranch in Southeast Montana, Hammond, Montana, uh, was one of my favorite stops just because it's such a different lifestyle than anything we know in Michigan. You know, it was a 6,000 acre cattle ranch. Uh, so I was out on the land each day doing the chores, bringing the cattle back from the land. And it was just awesome perspective. Uh, Secondly, one of the towns, Boise, Idaho, uh, is one of, the f one of the few stops I stayed with college students and, and people my age. Became best friends, uh, you know, did some crazy things like ice blocking and eating two-pound hamburgers. And, of course, had to go to a football game at the famous Smurf Turf. And then I think as a whole, people always ask my favorite state, and I always lean towards Washington State. Uh, it's I'm a I'm a casual guy. It's got a casual lifestyle, not as fast paced as as the East Coast, but it's got the ocean. It's got the mountains. The middle of Washington's you know practically like a desert and uh, a ton of variety. Well, who was the most interesting person that you met along the way? Her name is Gladys, <laughs> and Gladys uh, lives in a little town called Milton, Delaware, and this is towards the end of my trip and. Gladys, I believe, is 86 years old now, and I didn't actually stay with stay with Gladys, but I got to know her really well through some friends, and I, I got to speak with her on the phone a few weeks ago, and she's doing great. But what's interesting about Gladys is uh, she lives in the same house she was born in, 86 years later, uh, has lived in this house her whole life. Um, she still has a wood wood burning stove that she maintains. She's got a few chickens, like in the barn still, and. Uh, but the most interesting fact about her was that this tiny little state of Delaware and Gladys has supposedly never left the state of Delaware. And it's just a completely different perspective and how content she is to have everything she need in that little town. And, you know, she, don't try to throw a, a, a fastball past her because she's as, as, as quick as a whip and intelligent and bright and just, uh, you know inspiring i guess you know just just how confident and, and and how well she's doing so so i find this fascinating that you're able to do a trip that was so extensive in which again travel to 50 states and visit over 100 100 families or or households um and you did this all through your websites and as we talked earlier about social networking i also noticed as i looked at your websites um whether it be hometowninvasion.com or bewithbranson.com it's very interactive with people that are that are um looking at it talk about why it's important to possibly have your websites be interactive uh I mean, the reason why I make them interactive to begin with is just because I thoroughly enjoy the feedback. It's awesome hearing these comments or maybe other stories of people when they went to Boise or, you know, similar stories. And, you know, it's that's just where the web has kind of changed so much in the last few years is how dynamic it is. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be static anymore, and there are just uh, so many different ways that you can use you know 
visitors to the website to, you know, if it's voting on a photo or if it's a comment. But you can do all kinds of little things to, uh, you know, uh, promote it and, and, you know, using the social media and tying it all together. And, again, those websites are, are hometowninvasion.com, beerwithbranson.com, and then what's Uperstees, is it? Uperstees.com. Uperstees.com. Yes. All right. Well, in the studio I have a Justin or a Bugsy Sailor. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Donnie Brown. He is the drummer and one of the founding members of the Verb Pipe. Welcome to the show. Hi, Emily. So, so you guys are, are East Lansing natives. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, we're, we're an East Lansing band. We're natives from all over Michigan, but, but we started the band in East Lansing um, in 1992, forever ago to you and to me, but it was quite a while ago. And we we had two bands, and we were playing regularly at Rick's and around, and and uh, we kind of broke up those two bands at a Wendy's, and uh, it would be Grand River, right where Grand River and Michigan split. There was a Wendy's there. I remember Wendy's being delicious. 
Excellent. So you guys have been performing a lot around Michigan lately. Yeah, we have. We've been well. Being a Michigan band, it's good to be. It's good to be in the state and to be playing a lot. Actually, we're going over this evening uh, and taping backstage pass for WKAR here on campus. Yeah, was that a cool opportunity for you guys to be able to? Oh, do Oh, it's that? great! It's great. And Tim and uh, Ken over there have been extremely gracious. Extremely gracious. And what is that like having you know had the the number one hit in 1996 with Freshman and, and having you know that startup and then coming back to a place like East Lansing and performing? I mean, I'm I'm happy to play. Yeah, anybody who knows me knows that I'm I'm happy to like have a guitar on my lap and just be strumming and with some friends. And so, so a gig is a great thing, and gigs with the Verpipe are even greater things because you know we get a chance to play larger places and things like that. So to come back to East Lansing and kind of tape something is really, really special. And what was what was the Verve's pipes like? Big break that really got you going. Our big break. Well, I think getting signed to RCA was a big break. Uh, getting on at the time, major labels held a lot of clout. And, you know, the recording industry and record industry has changed immensely, you know, with indies and with the advent of the Internet just blowing up gigantically. But at that time, um, it was it was really uh, cachet to be on a major label. So to be on a major label was really great and and uh, afforded us the opportunity to uh, be in great studios working with great engineers and good producers and and making sounds that we wanted to make so so you're saying the music industry is changing talk a little bit about that well i mean the music industry to me is is just a hard thing right now um there's there's an there's too much music and not enough good music. <laughs> I mean, that's, I'm sorry, that's my opinion. And, uh, but I find it to be true that whenever somebody points me in the direction of something that, for the most part, I'm not that into it. Whereas I felt maybe it's, uh, as I'm getting uh, older, but, but, but I think that just the fact that there was a filter with what could be released before you know you had to kind of you know in order to make a record you had to have money nowadays you can make a record in your basement by going to radio shack and spending a couple hundred dollars therefore you get crappy records made on radio shack equipment for two hundred dollars versus a record that was made for two hundred thousand dollars on a on a label and everything in between now uh, we found a way our band has to make records you know our our latest record was made primarily in my basement in my basement studio and and didn't cost all that much money at all and turned out i think fantastically because of the people associated with it which is how you want to make records in my opinion and talk about that album that you guys just put out. Well, we made we made a record called a family album, and it's a it's a it's a record. It's a collection of songs that are geared towards kids and their families, um, and it's got a lot of storylines based on family life and, and based on uh, being young and getting into music and things like that. And it it came about when we were. We were asked to contribute a song for uh, Meyer 
stores around Michigan and Indiana for uh, a kids compilation. And so we wrote some songs to for them to consider and we wrote probably five or six songs some more than others went down the road some more than others and finished them and they took one of them and we kind of liked the ideas that we had and thought you know we should finish these because they're really fun and so brian our lead singer and myself got together and finished all of them and started recording so i i know the impact plays complimentary love which is off of yeah. that album um, and, and I know other bands like They Might Be Giants have also released children's albums. Is this something that a lot of people are really getting into now? I, I think that I think that it's um, that the genre is exploding a little bit. We were never we were never driven to do it. It just kind of came about, and I think that the innocence of that decision had kind of just happening for us naturally is something that we want to keep alive. We don't want to just make kids music because now we're making kids music. We kind of want to tap into how we did it the first time, which was, you know, Brian sang something to me or I sang something to him and we both cracked up. It's like, let's let's use that as our watermark and then go down the road once we achieve that and, and continue making music. Instead of like, well, you know, if we made another kids record, we could do this, you know. I think you're better off in today's world uh, following a muse for enjoyment purposes instead of money. <laughs> I'm sorry, that, that, but that's, that, that's kind of like, I, I have to live like that. I try, to, I try to, you know, keep that edict alive in my life. Is writing for family albums a lot different than writing, let's say, your, your alternative genre? Yes, you know, um, we're we're making a rock record. We're trying to make a rock record right now. But some of the things that I'm running into is is like with a rock and roll record, you're expressing yourself a little bit more. Whereas you you can kind of tap into something that's already happened to you when you're making a family record. You know, I grew up in a family of seven kids, so I have a lot of experiences. There's one song on the record called "We Had to Go Home," and it's about getting kicked out of a birthday party. My brother and I both got kicked out of a birthday party. We were also asked to leave the Boy Scouts of America. But, How did that happen? Uh, that was, I mean, that's another song that I guess I'll have to come up with. <laughs> but that was, um, that's just one of the, yeah, I mean, you tap into all those experiences of being a kid and, and the lessons that your parents tried to teach you. And now um, they apply it to us in our lives, you know. I know you guys just made a video um, from the song When One Became Two off of yes. the, the family album. Uh, talk a little bit about that video. I just got a chance to watch it, and it's adorable. I love the animation oh, in that. Oh, I'm glad you do. Well, there's an, uh, an animator by the name of Ophir Sasson, and he's uh, an Israeli animator. And we saw his work on another website, uh, and we thought that, that what he did was really great. Why don't we give him a song and see, give him the record and see what he comes up with? And he heard that song and he, and he thought, um, I'd like to make a video to that. And so, uh, so we have an animated video for when one became two, which is a really nice song on the on the record. It's one of the, one of the highlights to me. So you you're the drummer. I am. And is that and you also write some of the songs for the yep. bird pipe? Is that unique for a drummer to? Be composing songs? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it is, but but 
you know, I don't care if it's, you know, the bass player who's writing versus the lead singer versus anybody else, you know. Queen's biggest songs were written by their bass player, you know, and he was, you know, the bass player, and he just laid back there and did his thing. Um, and LeVon Helm from the band, I think, had by far the best voice of all of them in, in the band, and he was a drummer. So I, I just, I don't know. And how do you go about writing music? I go about writing music. I, I keep a handheld recorder in my pocket at all times. And sometimes, usually when I drink a bit of coffee and uh, get a little bit of a coffee jag on, it, it like, my synapses start firing and, and I'll come up with something. And trying to, trying to work that into something for the verb pipe is, is a tough thing. Now, do you picture East Lansing in, in any of the songs that the verb pipe has put out there? What I remember, when I think about the verb pipe, when I think about East Lansing, I remember playing the auditorium. We did quite a few shows at the auditorium in the 90s, and it, they were really, like, fantastic. Uh, not to sound too somber or anything, but my mother passed, and one of my memories of the verb pipe in East Lansing is my mother and father coming from Saginaw and seeing us there. And during the show, Brian, our lead singer, played the freshman by himself. And I went out in the audience. My parents were in these reserved seats. And I walked up to my father. And my father said, oh, my God, Donnie, this is really something. I, it, was, it was like, I, it's something that I, I just remember. And my mother was so proud. So I, I have that. So well, I'm thankful for that. What were some of your favorite venues to play in East Lansing besides, let's say, the auditorium? Oh, gosh. You know. We've played all over East Lansing, you know, on lawns everywhere. Uh, we've played, of course, the auditorium. We've been at Rick's. We've been at the Small Planet, old and new. And there's no longer a new Small Planet. So um, I I don't know. I mean, there, we've played everywhere. Yeah. And, and what's up next for, for the Verve Pipe in the future? Well, right now we're going to go finish uh, taping the backstage pass. I've got to find out when that airs. We're, we've just got a lot of more summer dates. We're playing at uh, the kids' stage at Lollapalooza and the kids' stage at Austin City Limits, which are two major festivals which I'm really excited to be part of and be able to be there for them. We've got a lot of dates in the summer. And... We're going to be going into the studio in the middle of July for a few things. And I'm still writing and recording, as is Brian, and we're sharing, throwing ideas back and forth on You Send It. And you might come out with a new album soon, a rock Well, album? I don't think it soon. Soon? We're, okay. we're working on stuff. I mean, we've got all sorts of things going. Right now we're working on a song called Hot Soup, which was inspir inspirational. You know, when uh, one of us got sick out on the road. We were on a tour in f March? In March. In the Northeast. Or February into March. We, we crossed the dates. It's just like, if you're going to book a rock and roll tour, just decide to go from Boston through the Northeast in February and March. And we were really fortunate because we missed this gigantic blizzard by a week and a half. And I was calling up all the places we were playing and advancing the shows where you call and you find out the size of the stage, you find out their PA, and you give them your input list, etc., etc. And 
some of the people were like, oh, I'm sorry I didn't get back with you. I'm sorry. I, didn't. I was still digging out from a week and a half ago. So we were fortunate in the fact that we missed that. But somebody did get a cold, and it inspired a song called Hot Soup, which hopefully you'll hear someday. And, and what's your guys' website where people can check out your tour dates? You can check out our tour dates at www.theverbpipe.com. And if you want to check out the family record, you can go to theverbpipe.com slash family, and you can stream the whole record, the whole thing. Well, in the studio, I have Donnie Brown. He is the drummer and one of the founding members of The Verve Pipe. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. When one became two, well, the two of us knew that whatever will be is going to be. And what was to be was that two became three. It's beginning to look like a family. I still remember that day in September when I heard that three would be four. When I heard it was twins We were jumping for joy For a new girl and boy And so what was to be Was much bigger than three It's beginning to look like a family If we burst at the seams We'll put beds on the beams And the For six could handle no more Not the five plus the four Then I remembered the spins When I heard of the twins So what was to be Was much bigger than three It's beginning to feel like a tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio representing Doug Maines and the City Folk is Doug Maines and as well as Kelly Pond. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks, yeah. So, so t- tell me a little bit about your musical backgrounds to introduce yourselves. Alright, well, I myself have uh, grown up playing music. I got my first guitar at 10, and it's kind of been a long process of... Um, just teaching myself guitar and then in high school starting to really focus on writing my own stuff. Um, and then end of high school, I, that's when I started performing and then it's been about four years since then and we've been playing together for about two years, a little over two years, maybe two years. Um, so yeah, and we've just been playing locally throughout Michigan and um, it's been a great journey so mm-hmm. far. Uh, I I play the violin in Doug Maines and the City Folk, and I also sing a little bit. And I started playing music when I was super young. Uh, my family is really musical, and I grew up playing classical violin and went to school for for classical music 
at Michigan State University in this, the College of Music, so, uh, <laughs> which was really awesome. And uh, I started experimenting with uh, fiddle music and then got into some folk music in the basement of the music building in a lonely practice room. Mm. And I went to an open mic that my friends encouraged me to go to, and Doug was running the open mic, and he played there, and um, we became friends and thought we might play some music together. So, so before before you play, um, how would you describe your music? Um, I usually describe it as modern folkish, because <laughs> um, I think we definitely have like um, folk aspects of like traditional folk kind of thing, mm -hmm. but it's uh, yeah. very like it's very organic and very natural, I guess, like folk music. But then it also has very much of a modern twist on it. And mm -hmm. a very um, what's the word like city feel? Yeah. So yeah, where did where did city folk get its name? <laughs> I guess you kind of just described uh -huh. that, but yeah, yeah, it's kind of just city folk. Like, um, is a group of people, uh, but it also kind of describes um, our style mm -hmm. and it's, and just that idea of capturing like being organic and earthy, but then also capturing like uh modernistic <laughs> feels or something you know? mm -hmm. <laughs> um so yeah there's that's where it came from probably helps to mention that we have two other members that are absent today mm -hmm. uh a cellist eli bender who also studied music uh or studied classical music at the college of music at michigan state university <laughs> and uh then a, a drummer uh and so Mike Cates. Yeah, Mike Cates. Mm. And so they add uh, a cool feel. Eli and I l learned about folk music together at the College of Music. So um, at, at the College of Music? Well, no, in the basement. Okay, I was gonna <laughs> say. <laughs> I don't know. No, we took some jazz and prof classes together, and that was super fun. But because um, I know he, he, I don't know if he was the one that was touring, but. Um, he's good friends with someone that, you know, is a fiddler, goes around, you know, yeah. the Michigan uh, and, and things like that. And I think he was involved for a while. Um, and I know he plays cello, so not fiddle, but that type of music. Yeah. And was involved with that. We both were. Actually. Okay. You were yeah. involved as well. All yeah. Right. Um, there's a, uh, we had, in that basement, there was uh, another student, Karina Smith, who plays violin as well. And she asked us, asked me if I wanted to jam one night. And I was like, what is that? I have no idea. <laughs> what so, is jamming? Yeah. <laughs> what is this jam you say? <laughs> so, um, actually, and then, and Eli was another friend of ours from um, uh, orchestra. We played together in orchestra, and then we took, the three of us took jazz improv together for non majors, for non jazz majors. And then we started hanging out outside of school, and we actually, Karina taught us a lot about fiddle music, and she was the artistic director of a high school touring fiddling group in Saline, Michigan called. Fiddlers Restrung, who are awesome, awesome group of students. And we, Eli and I became um, interns and coaches there with that group. So we get to hang out with them, teach them fiddle music, learn a lot of fiddle music. We've traveled a lot doing, like, uh, camps and such. So we did some uh, workshops around Michigan and even took us to Illinois once, <laughs> which was fun. So, yeah, so Eli and I, it's it's cool to mix, like, Doug, who has not had classical training, and Mike, who hasn't had class classical training either, and Eli and I, who have both been trained up 
you know, and see how those meld together. It's been a great learning uh, opportunity and a great, like, uh, melding of those two worlds. And I love our little mini family. <laughs> it's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, without further ado, would you guys be willing to perform for us? Yeah, yes. Yeah. But of course. <laughs> but of course. This song is called Teresa St. John's.
You're listening to Impact Exposure. Michigan Storytelling segment. I am Andy Childers, a graduate of MSU and desperately looking for employment. This is called When I Was Younger. I had all this planned out. I had in my head this wonderfully constructed, artfully crafted analogy about all the ways we used to feel as high schoolers and how four years later, as we were finishing college, we were all kind of feeling the exact same way we did then, if not an amalgamated form of it. I thought, oh man, I am going to make people think, and when they finally believe they've related to what they think are their high school feelings, bam, I'd get them, you see. No one would see the punchline coming, but guess what? It's only actually been four years, and you're still just as melodramatic, better than your parents, and all that other minutia. You've simply just discovered new ways to drown it out, legal or otherwise. But that's when I realized that back in high school, all that metaphorical realization hoopla used to be my old, tired game. See, back in the time known as 2006, I once considered myself quite the artist. See, I was what I called a writer. I would create stories and characters dealing with my own subconscious pain that I honestly didn't know I had, uh, and would create elaborate plots and scenarios in hopes to get people, an audience, to understand and to humble themselves. Also, I was awesome at it. Only problem with this is that I was also a pretentious know-it-all, tired of the ultra-conservative bourgeoisie society, and hell-bent on being the J.D. Salinger of the new generation, teaching people but essentially not growing up at all myself. But that was because I was already an adult and didn't need any more maturity. Well, it's been four years, and while I sadly can't say I've stopped writing or planning how to answer my Oscar speech for Best Original Screenplay, I did inadvertently grow up, or at least enough to realize I am nowhere near growing up anyway. Last week I slept on a bed without sheets for a week because I was too lazy to go down two floors into the basement and put my sheets into the dryer. I used a towel for a pillow, but then it got wet because I also had to use it to bathe. I repeat, I am nowhere near an adult. But it was only a week later that I helped my parents move seven states away. And after three days of driving with them, I realized how much I just may indeed love and need them in my life. And how I'll probably never get over them if they died. I have no idea how my mother has managed 14 years without having the person who raised you call you and tell you they still love you. Coming from a kid who two years ago spent over $1,000 to stay the summer in East Lansing so I wouldn't have to listen to my parents tell me they didn't like my excessive drinking, I think I've made some serious progress. I wanted this article, this uh, rant on the inability to understand how much we're always changing, to be read by kids in high school, starting college, finishing college, so they could all see we're all the same in that we're always changing. I thought if we all got on the same page here, we'd have a few teenagers saved from coming into college thinking they couldn't get any more adultier like me. For me, what I basically learned in college, aside from all that education nonsense, is that really our parents were right. We're just idiots. Only, only now we've been idiots with a few more years of experience under our belts and an awareness of how much we like to talk to the girl we like on Facebook chat when Jin gets involved. I said an awareness, not the ability to stop doing it. That's where we're at as veterans of the four-year bachelor's business. We know our faults, we know our problems, but we're not through with abusing them quite yet. 
But hey, that's a lot better than not knowing him at all, like when we were in high school and seniors and ready to conquer the world. Maybe in four years I'll have stopped checking out X's Facebook pages, because I know how sad it makes me feel when I drink. But until then, I'm going to keep trying to save the world one analogy at a time. Even if I know that just like my parents tried with me, nobody's going to listen until they've done it all themselves. But hey, in four years, they'll know what they were doing was wrong. It'll just probably take another four years to stop doing it. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Andrew Childers. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.